Brand builds trust and bad brand experience breaks trust, period. Brand equals recognition equals trust. You're listening to Seedcamp Firsts, the definitive guide to help early stage founders get their companies off the ground. Brought to you exclusively through the wisdom and lessons learned from some of the brightest minds across the Seedcamp nation. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Seed Camp Firsts, where we're discussing how to lay the foundation for your startup brand. And I could not be more excited than to welcome the fabulous Joanna Christie onto the podcast. How are you doing, Joanna? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. Very, very lucky us to have you. For those of you who don't know, Joanna has a background in luxury brands and communications, and she's helped scale a series of well-known and loved brands, a variety of stages from List to Treatwell, and now she is at Seed Camp Batch Company Gaia, the world's first IVF insurance product. With over 10 years focused specifically on marketplaces, she has performance-led experience in building, communicating, measuring, and marketing brands across everything, whether it's B2B, B, B to C, and also B to B to C. So she knows it all. Joanna joined List as head of brand shortly after their Series A funding. Was one of the first 20 employees there, focusing on supply and demand acquisition across the UK and US. She then went on to Treatwell, where as the group brand and marketing director, she delivered the company's rebrand, looking at the consumer platform as well as the SaaS proposition, their brand marketing strategy and success and go to market across 13 different markets. She then was at Do This as the first marketing hire where her remit spanned branding, strategy, performance, marketing, and strategic partnerships. And now she's VP of marketing at Gaia, where she's tasked with creating an industry-defining brand for a highly complex and first-to-market product in a very highly emotional space. Joanna, oh. how do how do where do we even begin with a with Makes a me sound like I'm about 90 years old, which thankfully <laughs> I'm on a podcast and no one can see that I actually probably do look about 90 years old, but Thank you for that lovely introduction. Well, people can see your face on the video as well, so they'll know oh that you're gosh. beautiful and lovely. There's a surprise. Fantastic. <laughs> Joanna, I'm going to delve straight in because so many questions I want to ask you and so much experience that we can all glean from you. So starting really at the beginning, and why do you think that brand is foundational for early stage companies? So I'm going to start this all by sharing a quote that I don't know who I'm going to attribute it to. I need to find out who said it, but... Someone once told me that marketing is asking someone out on a date and brand is why they say yes. And really this whole concept that brand isn't spending lots of money on out of home. My brand is your guide and that's why you need to nail it very early on. It helps you make decisions, be that product, be that how you're pitching, your customer service. It's your reputation. You get one chance to do it. So it's core to everything. It's not just the marketing. It's how you speak. It's how you interact. It's how people interact with you. And it makes you, you. I don't often quote Jeff Bezos when it comes to brand necessarily, but he famously said that your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And I think being very clear early on about what it is you want people to say when you're not in the room and building everything around that is really, really important. There also seems to be this sort of trend that people think that brand and growth are mutually exclusive and they fundamentally are not. You know, you take something like paid social, for example, it's 80% creative or brand and 20% buy and they support each other beautifully and brand doesn't need to cost a fortune either. So yeah, I know I'm biased, but it's the first building block for anything you're doing as a business, not just marketing. 
Well, you know that I'm very aligned and in agreement with your way of thinking. How do you manage founders when they come and sort of say, we just need growth and we're not willing to invest in this brand piece? How do you help them navigate like, understanding why the two are so integrally linked? I think, first of all, you point out the brands and the companies that they all aspire to be. You take someone like an Airbnb. Airbnb has taken a while, of course, but they've now turned off all of their paid marketing and are growing faster than they ever have before. I think founders are becoming much more aware of efficiency and sustainability. I think we've all seen, sadly, over the last few months, how companies can fall foul when they go after that hockey stick. And it's all about growth and not caring about unique economics and not thinking about lifetime value and not thinking about retention, which are the goals of brand as well. The beauty of brand is that it ticks everything. Brand can do your acquisition for you in a much more sustainable way than performance is going to do. Whereas, of course, there is always a place for performance marketing, but brand can do that. But brand also does the retention piece for you. It does LTV. If you do it well, it's doing referral for you. That's where you get a product so good it's marketing itself when the brand is really core to that. So I think a lot of founders would aspire to create the types of companies that the best brands in the world are. It's as simple as that. But they sit alongside each other, as I said. But brand, I think because people assume brand, you need to spend lots of money and wrap a load of buses and do a load of advertising. You don't. And I think the education in terms of what brand means is probably core to that as well. So how do you think about that then? If we take a step all the way back, because obviously we can look at these big brands like the Airbnbs and we aspire to them, but we're so far away from reaching where they're at, especially at the early stages. So when you're working with and advising founders and helping them think through this, what do yep. you believe are the key elements of a powerful brand? And how can you create standout in the early days when you're so constrained from a budget and a resource perspective compared to others? Absolutely. So there's this famous chap called Byron Sharp who wrote this book, The Marketing Bible. And interestingly, he talks about mental availability and physical availability. But from a mental availability point of view, it's all about this concept of building memory structure. So it's very simple to choose one element and lean hard into it. Make it your hero. It could be a logo. It could be a color. For Monzo, it was a hot coral card. And they lent so hard into that consistency, 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 because if you believe in the seven touch rule, which is that somebody needs to see something seven times before they take an action, consistency is core to that. And understand what that element could be within your own organization. There's this incredible, as I'm sure Tash will know, Dollar Shave Club basically built a brand on this one video of their founder explaining their product. Now, you don't have to be as funny as he is or as good in front of the camera, but Think outside the box, but consistent, whatever it is you decide, back it and be consistent with it because it's not performance. It's not overnight. It takes a while. And that's why it's so important that there's real integrity to it. And it's true to the values and who that brand and business is because you need to sit with it for a while. But choose one and yeah, back it. And let's do this. We chose this neon yellow for the brand because we wanted it to be so vibrant and splashed over every single endurance event and rather handily in endurance events and running events, London Marathon, the marshals wear this neon yellow tabard. So immediately we had that association whenever you see it. Gaia, we've chosen a brand that's so at odds, so different to anything else in the fertility space. There's no pink, there's no blue, there's no babies being dangled. And that, again, is a message we're putting out there to say this is different in a space that sadly is one that hasn't got a great reputation. We want to stand out by being different and strong. Say, so take a risk. And again, when you're early, what's the worst that can really happen as well? That's the fun bit about being early stage.
What's the worst that can happen? I go straight to Dr. Pepper ads, probably showing my age there. So when you think about building out the brand function, you just use some great example about how you've thought about creating standout from a visual identity or framing perspective, the likes of Let's Do This and Gaia. But how should startups be thinking about bringing support in? And should in the early days this be an in-house support, somebody like yourself that they're looking to hire in from the start or is it easier better to work with agencies or freelance talent in the early days so I'm biased obviously because otherwise I wouldn't have a job and a career but ideally you want to have a brand guardian an advocate a protector in-house I think I've seen too many times when a founder or a business will retain an agency to build them a brand the agency hands over this sort of glorified PDF and that's and they think that's the end of it, it's done. You know, whenever you get your brand, whether it's from an agency or not, that's just the start. You need someone in-house who's driving that. Now that can be the founder themselves. That can be a CTO. You know, I've worked CTOs who love brand as well. But you need to have someone internal. Again, to my point, because brand is not just an advertising creative. It is the product journey. It's the words that you use in that piece of UX copy. It's the user experience. It's how you invoice people. It's your paywall, whatever those pieces are. You need to have that golden thread because what brand does is builds that trust that people will have in you. So I would always advocate to bring someone in-house because you know you've got that nailed and you can trust them entirely and take that PDF and make it a reality and start to build something distinctive and sustainable. I couldn't agree more the need for a shepherd to actually ensure that everything is being rolled out in the right way and also interrogating that it's continuing to work, right? Because brands are static and they don't stand still. So ensuring that what's been done and come is is continuing to evolve with the product and the business as it evolves as well as integral. You touched on the importance of trust and look, that bit is so important, especially when you're in the early stages and for you at Gaia, for example, even more so than ever when you're talking about regulated markets and for things that are so like highly emotional as things like our fertility and wanting to build families are. When you think about the role that trust plays. How important is that? And what are some of the best ways to get real insights from customers and integrate that into your marketing and brand strategy early on? Absolutely. Brand builds trust and bad brand experience breaks trust, period. Brand equals recognition equals trust. And Guy is a really interesting example because what we're doing is we're trying to bring a completely new product to market. So we have that challenge in itself. The market is one where there's very little trust. It's very opaque. No one trusts anyone. And thirdly, people are so desperate for any sort of solution, specifically in financial support for IVF, that people are willing in a dichotomy that they're willing to trust anything because they need as much help as they possibly can do. So actually for us, a guy, it's been about being as open as we possibly can do. We talk a lot about surfacing our T's and C's as early on in the journey as possible, because our members, our prospective members are having enough doubt and confusion and uncertainty about lots of other things. We don't want to add to that. So being clear about when people are eligible or not eligible for risk insurance has been really high in our priorities from day one. Also, there's this wonderful piece around being in a startup where you can appeal to people's kinder sides. There's a whole sort of Kevin Kelly's 1000 True Fans or how the Soul Cycle Girls started. You know, you ask, you say, we're small, we're learning, give us feedback. And whether that's Glossier having their Slack group at Gaia, we have a WhatsApp group of what we call our alpha members, the first people. But we push for honesty. We will ask them, 
we don't want to hear all the lovely stuff. I think it's great to get those real insights by being as obsessed about why someone hasn't bought your product, asking them directly and from a finder as well. We sent an email at the end of last year from NADO just reaching out to say, we know this is a tough time of year. Lots of families asking, when are you going to have kids? All those sort of typical uncles, few drinks in questions. And the response that we had from that, and in that same email, he said, give me feedback. And he got lots and he responded back and we're building product changes and we're communicating back to those people, thanking them for their suggestions and showing that we're putting it into fruition as well. So it's important to hear from the detractors as it is from the promoters, because we can all sit there and glorify ourselves with all the happy stuff. But listen to why people don't want to use your product. And you'll get much more powerful insights. And people will tell you because, as we know from reviews, it's polarizing. If people either love you, they're going to tell you about it. If they don't like you, they'll also tell you about it. So take the time to listen to that and don't be defensive about it. It's very powerful. Feedback is a gift, whatever it is. How do you balance the gift of feedback and the ones to to action and the potential impact that will have and its relevance to the brand and the goals and where you want to get to and the stuff that's just an opinion because we all have them. We all have them. This is where data comes in. You can take a signal from a piece of call feedback or an insight. um, And then that's the beauty of working in digital and tech products. We can either take it and put it on an ad and go to Meta and give them a bit of money and put it out there and see how people respond to it. We can do A-B testing with certain ideas. So usually you look for a trend. So if several people are saying the same thing, something you need to sit up and take notice of. We're all sort of smart, instinctive people. You can tell when there's just vitriolic outpouring because somebody's had a bad experience. There's always those people. But where you see a trend and where there's an easy way to then test that with on a more quantitative level, that's where it gets interesting. And you get some real beauties then that you wouldn't necessarily have thought of before. But also that feedback loop as well, Tash, be able to change something small and say to someone, thank you for your feedback. You've done that. You've got an advocate for life right there. And it's a very small thing to do. It's amazing, isn't it? How often the low hanging through to the bits that are missed and the value that that has in contributing to the trust and the advocacy, which is so important for the brand. So whether that's thanking people for feedback or demonstrating yeah. how their feedback is being used or why it's not, if you know, you're not being able to use it is so key. How do you think about with the sort of early power users, how you keep yeah. them involved and engaged as the brand moves on? So let's do this specifically. We created this persona group called The Enthusiasts. And actually, Tash, I'd probably have you down as an enthusiast. And The Enthusiasts were those people who very early on were using Let's Do This. They loved running. They loved doing triathlons. They loved swimming. They just loved it. They loved the whole experience of it. They loved the community of it. But more importantly, they were those people who would start a WhatsApp group and put five people on it and say, right, who's up for doing the ASICS 10K in July? So not only are they great advocates and they're giving us great feedback, but the viral coefficient, the value of them at that level because of the referral power they had was huge. Bring those early advocates in, involve them, ask them for feedback, create a shadow board if you really want to be as customer obsessed as so many people claim to be. And make it tangible with crowdsourcing, et cetera, as well. There is the opportunity to actually have people involved, have an investment in your business if they really have that much power. Yeah, it's a fun thing to do. And you just never know what they're going to say, which is wonderful as well. 
It's the same with Guy. We have this WhatsApp group of what we call our alpha members. And they're, because this is a community where people want to help people, they're helping the next generation of members that are coming through, starting their IVF journey. So there's this lovely sort of kindness is a huge value for us at Gaia. And how do we fulfill that for our existing members and the members that are coming through and supporting each other? But as I said, in the words of Kevin Kelly, if you find those true fans, the product markets itself, you don't need to give another pine to Google or Meta, which I would happily do. I think that's the issue, right? Especially in the very early stages, it's getting to that product market fit and finding and identifying who those people are and you maybe don't have as obvious a product market as you have at Gaia right the customer could be so many different things do you move the brand around who the customer is or do you make the brand far-reaching enough to encompass all how do you think about that I think you have to make the brand far-reaching at all I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I would have for founders as you scale and I'd be very lucky to work with incredible founders and have been with them on as businesses have scaled is you need to back yourself and you need to back your brand, whatever that foundation is, and be smart about the foundations you like. Don't just choose a color because you like that color. Be thoughtful about the competitive piece, any other colors that there is, any brand equity you need to be aware of in terms of the brands that you're going up against that you're going to be trying to take share of wallet from. But once you have decided what it is, give it a chance. And there will always be a level of flex. You have different personas in every brand I've worked in. There's different personas, whether it's the guy who just wants to get that quick haircut at Treatwell or someone like me who has everything sort of preened and is in the beauty salon every minute. The brand Treatwell didn't change. We had eight colors. So with eight colors, we were able to use different colors, although just to be clear, it wasn't pink for girls, blue for boys, but it just gave that level of flexibility. So definitely think about that because the reason you exist is your brand, the why, the how, the what potentially will change. And there's different propositions. And as you said, it's a living organism. There's going to be an evolution within it, but it can't change every time you worry about something or you get a piece of bad feedback. And it also shouldn't change every time you bring in a different CMO. That's something else I see time and time again. It seems to be that one trick which some people could say about me because I've definitely done it a few times, but that's because of the stage that I've entered businesses. But brand equity is built on consistency and it evolves. If you look at Airbnb's first website versus where they are today, you'll see that there's elements of that brand, that identity that stays true. And a lot of the stuff that changes, thankfully, to how Airbnb looks today. But it's that consistency piece again, because recognition, you pay for it. And if you lose it because you change things, you've just thrown away a load of equity that's very hard to build up. I think also from my experience, in the early days when there's not much there, there is more flexibility to change things. But as you say, like one of the things we brand marketing types like to do is, is come in and put our stance and our yeah. and our sort of flair on something. And so one of the things I'm always speaking to our seed camp founders about is, look, if you know you need to and you want to make a hire because you don't have one who's looking after brand and marketing internally, but you need something for now, involve people you're considering hiring as part of that external process. They can feel they're involved in it or just do something so simple and light touch for now because anybody you bring in is going to change it. So yeah, not spending too much if you don't have the people to guide it through or you're going to- Not too much. Not too much. And also if you are going to use agencies, don't go to the ones that everyone else has used and pay the big bucks for it. I think that's the other message around the agency piece is there's so many amazing agencies that are smaller 
that will care more and do more stuff. You don't have to chase after the big ones. It doesn't have to cost an absolute fortune. There's definitely lessons learned there as well. I guess though they've got the brands that people feel are trusted because they've done the work people like, but you pay this a premium. And as we all know, and sometimes matching small with small is actually a better fit and understanding your stage and who the right partner is for you at that point. I want to switch tact a little bit to all things marketplaces, because this is definitely a it's your amazing expertise in all of this, but also it can be a real challenge, especially in the very early stage when they're like, well, do we need two sub brands and how do we fill the marketplace and how do we think about it? So what do you see as some of the main challenges for double sided B2B2C marketplaces and, and how can you overcome them? So the biggest issue is this word that I never knew existed until I started working at List. And thank you, Chris Morton, for introducing me to it, is this word disintermediation, which effectively means that if you're a supply driven marketplace, your suppliers don't necessarily trust you. And this trust words comes out again because they are worried that they're going to be removed from their customer's journey. So the whole way to overcome this, from my point of view, is to your point, Tash, You have to be as obsessed with your supply value proposition as you are with your demand value proposition. I think too easily people think about the demand piece and they don't think about the supply. And you could have however many people coming to your website for a curry. If there's no curries there, you've lost them. They've gone off somewhere else. So disintermediation is the big one. Being very thoughtful about what would the concern be for your supply. So Treatwell was a lot of SMEs. And for them, they were worried about A, paying a commission time and time again on new clients, but also that they were getting ousted out of the relationship, that the relationship was between Treatwell and the client, not between them and their client. And clients were so important to them. So spending as much time being thoughtful and again, asking for that feedback and making them feel like they're part of the business as well, because they fundamentally are. And in the perfect world, when marketplaces work, it's glorious because what you become is this highly efficient acquisition machine for them. You're bringing a true value proposition to the market for consumers and everyone is gloriously happy. I mean, you look at like a Klarna ASOS relationship, it's the absolute dream. They love each other. I have no idea what would ever happen if ASOS left Klarna or Klarna left ASOS. But there is this level of when it works, it's perfect. And at a brand level, B2B2C is the holy grail. But treat well, every single me- someone I was going after was sitting in a salon chair talking directly. The person they trusted was the person cutting their hair or doing their nails. It's again, very, very similar. Let's do this. People want to do the Great North Run. What we want to do is Great North Run to redirect them through Let's Do This to book it. And then it becomes the end goal. B2B2C is product market fit at the end of the day for marketplaces. Definitely the challenge is disintermediation. So the way to think about that is how do I make my supply feel like they're part of my business and they're front of mind for me. And they're not just a cash cow that I'm going to take commission from every time I send someone to them. And how can a brand in those instances maintain the trust and the relationship so that you still go through via their service versus going direct? So I think it comes down to, again, this idea of advocates. How do you find those supply or those partners who do get it and do love it? And who are those dominoes effect? Very early on at List, there was definitely this view because I am 90 and this was a very long time ago where fashion was really starting to understand online and data and they knew it was confusing. And I remember we did a partnership with um, 
this website e newsletter. It was called Business of Fashion. And every single CEO and CMO was reading it because that was the source. What are people doing? What are Burberry, Topshop and Net-A-Porter doing? Because they were leading the way and Neiman Marcus and everyone was following them. We did that partnership with them because we knew that if we're in there, people are going to sit up and take notice because we're spending money and we're taking the time to be thoughtful and to build thought leadership in those places as well. Again, finding those advocates, finding those few that if you really focus on them, others will come because you just need that one case study. You need to show success. You need to show you're supporting their conversion rates by doing X, Y, and Z and be thoughtful, treat them as an audience. And this is the other thing with brand. People often talk to me about, I need a supply brand or a consumer brand. And then I'm going to need an employer brand. Then I'm going to need an employee brand because employer brand is different to employee brand. It's one brand and you just have different audiences. And that's where the flex needs to come through as well. You can speak to even those four as separate audiences and of themselves. Definitely agree with that. Joanne, this has been incredibly insightful so far. And one of my last questions, which I might make you blush, so I apologize, oh. but one of the biggest challenges that startups have is attracting great senior talent, especially when they're in the early days and building and there's not much yet to show and they just can't compete on the same level that the big dogs in the world can. So what is it that attracts you to an early stage? Because, you know, you've been part of multiple early stage startups over the years. What attracts you to join those brands and what can companies do so that they can stand out when it comes to appealing to executive marketing talent? I think an understanding of brand growth, marketing, from very early on in my conversations, most of the founders I've worked on, there was this immediate understanding of how important brand is. Possibly, and this is, I would very much doubt that any seed campuses would do this, but you definitely have those founders who have a few that they want that hockey stick growth and, you know, economics isn't a phrase they want to hear about and sustainability and efficiency aren't words they just care about getting that growth to go to raise that A or that B with it. Being a lot more thoughtful and having a much long-term view. Brand and marketing does not sit in a silo. It can't sit in a silo. That's definitely what I look for is a founder who understands that brand and marketing are as best mates with customer service as they are with product, as they are with everything else. And a level of understanding what sustainable growth looks and that it isn't growth at all costs is really important. So there's a level of, I guess, patience in that because brand takes time and it takes patience. It's like SEO is exactly the same, but once it works you know, you've absolutely nailed it. So that's probably what I'm looking for in that understanding of the power of brand to support performance, but not performance at all costs. I love that. So it's the founder buy-in and them actually believing in brand. It's the sustainable growth rather than growth at all costs. Yeah. It's the integration of brand across everything because brand is absolutely everything that you do make. I do think in these sort of times, we do see a move and a shift more towards more sustainable growth just because people are looking at doing things more slowly. And perhaps yeah. these are moments where brand can shine a bit more because you have more time to demonstrate and prove out the results. Absolutely. And you have investors asking about LTV and they're asking about retention and they're becoming so much more aware of what a life cycle of customer retention looks like as well. And, and brand is front of mind. Brand, as I said, it, it ticks off so many boxes because it does the acquisition, it does the retention, it does the LTV, it does the referral. But you just need to be patient with it and let it do what it does best. And also just think about the last brand that you talked about, or the last brand that got you to buy and why. It's very simple. We're all consumers. Say, so don't overcomplicate it either. Brand is a very simple concept. It just requires consistency, shepherding, and 
someone who is that bastion ideally in-house to make sure it works. And it can work. You can use data to make sure it works. Brand data are not mutually exclusive either, which is an important point as well. Because I think a lot of people think it's this sort of dark science that you can never attribute anything to. And you absolutely can. You just need to be creative and smart about the way you're doing it. Love that. Well, creative and smart are two things that you most certainly are, Joanna. Thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and wisdom with us today. We are very lucky to have you as one of our mentors at Seedcamp and also obviously thrilled that you're at one of our portfolio companies, Gaia, now having a great impact there. Thank you so much for your time. My absolute pleasure and my joy. Thank you very much indeed. See you soon. Thank you.